ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Andy Kamenetsky. Brian is out of town, which is unfortunate because he really wanted to be a part of this interview. My guest is a director whose career spanned nearly 50 years. His films include War Games, Stakeout, and the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. He's done tons of television, including Psych, Supernatural, and The Shield. He's here to discuss his most famous movie, which is among the most iconic in recent film history. The movie is Saturday Night Fever, which turns 40 years old on December 14th. It made John Travolta perhaps the biggest movie star on the planet, and it made white disco suits appear somewhat noble. John Badham joining me. John, how are you? I'm great. Great. How are you today? I'm doing terrific. Um, okay. Well, I guess uh, to begin with, what attracted you to Saturday Night Fever as a project? Well... I was fortunate enough to read it without any of the music, without any of the dancing, just kind of a straight script, and and I completely fell in love instantly with characters who came from a city that I had almost never been to, Brooklyn, and and it was about disco that I knew not so much about, but but the the characters and the dialogue and the and the story just really spoke to me, cured me of a horrible flu that I had at the time. It was like instant cure. Did did it speak to you because it was so different than the experience that you had had? Like it's taking you to a world that you hadn't seen before. No, you know, I I grew up in in England and in Alabama, really <laughs> different places. Yes, but. It's you know I said I understand what this kid is going through. I understand what what his life is like. I get it. Uh, I get the relationships with that are fractured between the parents and the girlfriends and uh, you know and all the stress that this guy. Even though I don't know anything about this you know this little subculture, uh, I feel like I do. I think the proof the proof of that was the way people seem to react to it around the world that that, that you know that in different countries everywhere it went of yeah. course the disco and the dancing and the music and so on was was a fabulous part of it but it it had this great foundation underneath it yeah, well, I think one of the themes that makes it so relatable is just that theme of being a big fish in this little pond. And, you know, Tony's this god in his surroundings, especially at 2001 Odyssey. But it's this limited world, and he knows it, and he wants to escape it, but he has no idea how. And I, I think everybody can understand the idea of just wanting more, thinking that they have more to offer the world. Oh, yeah, and and that there's more outside of your your little domain. And yet it's scary to, to you know, go outside of, of that and, and and go, yeah, 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 I know you're telling me I need to go there, but uh, it's so comfortable here. I got my friends. I got all my stuff that I like. Uh, it's a big, big step. And, and as the story tells, it takes just virtually an explosion to get him to even try to go outside of his comfort zone. Yeah, and it's funny because the movie is so, like you said earlier, heavily associated with disco and the clothes and the culture of the disco area. I I think people tend to forget that Saturday Night Fever is a really hard-edged movie. And to its credit, and to your credit, I've read in, in researching the movie that the producers, John Travolta, I would assume you as well, had to fight at times to, to keep the movie the way it was. 
Oh yeah, it was. It was just uh, there had. I don't think there had been many, if any, movies with as language as strong as we had. The, the sexuality in there is pretty mild, uh, even you know, even for the time. But the, but the language was so strong, and the 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 remarks that were racist and homophobic and so on that make me wince. Oh, you know, when I went to see it a couple of weeks ago at the Directors Guild, I was wincing at some of the scenes, but that's the way these guys talk. And and that's, you know, the honesty of it uh, spoke to people. It was quite quite powerful. It got a lot of people uh, in Hollywood upset uh, with it. Uh, even the, the big Paramount executives were very nervous about it. it. I mean, it didn't cost them a whole heck of a lot. It was a pretty cheap movie, but it was just their their reputation that they were worried about. How, how did you go about convincing them that this would work, or did they, were they not convinced and you just, they trusted you? Well, I had the ultimate 500-pound or 1,000-pound gorilla in the room, which was Robert Stigwood, mm-hmm. the producer, and who had who was the, the manager and producer for the Bee Gees and for Elton John and Peter Frampton and all of these great, great musicians of the time. And he had absolute final cut on, on the picture. Uh, and in order to get it, he, he paid out of his own pocket for the, the cost of the whole movie, and Paramount was doing the distribution. So... It was kind of what he said went. And Paramount would look at me and say, can't you take some of this profanity out? And Robert would look at me and go, don't change a word. <laughs> so there I was, stuck in between these these two powerhouses. But at least you were stuck on the side you wanted to be on, ultimately. Oh, thank God, yes. Um, Ab- absolutely. Speaking of uh, disagreements about the film, also in, in just reading about it, I, I read that you and John Travolta actually had a few disagreements about some pretty pivotal scenes. The the first of which was the opening, where John walks down the street to staying alive, and that he didn't like the way he walked. I guess upon seeing the dailies, and he wanted it to be redone to more of that strut that's in the finished product. Well, it's not quite like that. Uh, he he lost his uh, a, a girlfriend that yes. was very very he, he and the girl were woman were very close Diana Highland and Diana Highland and it was just tragic and he he had to leave the set for several days uh, and and he's in every scene in the picture and we're left with nothing to do and I said well let's do. Let's do this opening where I've got this uh, shot of the, of his feet and and a paint can swinging, and we can we can certainly use the time to you know get something there. So we got his his uh, double, his photo double, uh, to do to do the walking and, and to the playback of staying alive, and. Uh, and our choreographer was there and, and helped put a little bit of bounce in his step. So uh, when John came back and we were able to film him in there, 
I said, oh, and, and here's what Joey, your stand-in, did with the help of Lester, our choreographer. And, and John looked at it and said, well, I don't walk that way. And we go, yeah, but, you know, we, we had to do something. He said, I don't walk that way. <laughs> so I said, okay, all right, no, no problem. Okay, go ahead and do what you want to do. Just do it, you know, the way you feel it's right. So, so we did that. And then um, I thought, well, it'll work okay. And, of course, the first thing the editor said to me when he saw the dailies was, what do I do about the fact these guys don't walk the same? (laughs) Oh, no. He said, I'll fix it. Don't worry. And so, actually, what's in the film is both pieces of film. It's both John and it's both and Joey. The close shots on the feet are Joey, mm-hmm. uh, and and the two the two match together uh, pretty pretty well. But uh, this is sometimes what you know what you're stuck with when you, when you don't have your uh, star there and you're under a time crunch. Right. The time crunch was we had to get him out of there because he was starting rehearsal on Greece in just a few weeks. So you guys like are... we're going to finish today, and Monday he's going to be in rehearsal on Greece. Um, the the other scene that I, I had read, and perhaps this wasn't exactly correct either, was that the original "You Should Be Dancing" solo dance was shot in the beginning more, I guess, either close up of John's face or more sort of waist up, with the feet and the knees not showing as much. And he he wasn't happy about that, and you ended up reshooting it more, where you got these full shots and you got more of a sense of his feet and I guess like sort of the whole spectrum of of the dance scene. Is that accurate? Not quite. Uh, when we shot it... Well, everybody shot tells it. these things with a different perspective. That's okay. But what the truth is, we shot it, the first shots we shot were the full shots, the big wide shots, mm-hmm. the ones where the, the camera's craning around him. And, uh, and, and, we, and we did that. We had a day to do this. And uh, that was the first thing we were doing in the morning. Probably by 10 or 11 in the morning we were doing that. And then as the day went on, we got closer and closer uh, to get to get close shots on him. Uh, so we had all of that all of that footage. And uh, I don't want to throw my editor under the bus, <laughs> uh, but in putting it together, he kind of got carried away with the close-ups and and john came in and looked at it and said wait a minute what happened to all that good wide stuff because this this could be anybody dancing you know because you're if you're shooting me for my waist my waist up who knows what my feet are doing and and i remembered that was fred astaire had that in his contract Mm -hmm. that you could only shoot him full figure head to toe when he was dancing and 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 I you know that the, the minute John said it I said you're of course you're right of course no problem and we went back to the went back to the cutting room and and uh David our editor put it the other way within a couple of hours mm-hmm. and and that's again that's what's in in the picture and and John was absolutely right. Uh, we just, you know, we needed a fresh perspective on it. 
and uh, and and he brought it and got it, you know, to work as well as it does. It's my understanding he really pushed himself too when it came to the the training for the dancing and just like the execution of what he did in these scenes. Like he really wanted to push himself to the limits of what he was capable of. Oh, he did. He did. I mean, see, you just look at what he's doing, and it's so physically hard bouncing up and down on your knees and then back up and stuff like that and you're going for about four minutes straight because that's how long that song runs uh and you know it's a miracle he could stand up at the end of a take they'd have to peel (laughs) the suit off him which was soaked by that point and put the other one we had (laughs) you know we had one other dry one and so while we was doing a take the, some poor wardrobe person is standing out on the street holding the suit up with a hair dryer, <laughs> trying to blow it dry so we can use it for the next take. Some of the the dance scenes uh, throughout the movie, there, there's this ethereal quality to them. They're at times shot slightly fuzzy. There's this fog and smoke. The colors are bright. The music is echoey almost at times. It it feels to me at least like this dreamlike state. Like it's almost like Tony's utopia. What vibe were you trying to capture with these scenes? Because they're, they're so memorable. Well, yeah, I, you understand it. You've got it. Uh, it. It is, you know, it's a, a place of refuge, uh, a, a, a place where you can, you know, forget all of, all of your problems and, and, and just be in that fantasy. It's a wonderful fantasy world that you can go into, and it's such a complete meant to be such a complete contrast to the the kind of gritty uh world of outside where there's gang wars and uh people you know getting getting their girlfriends pregnant and you know just the life the life of of uh New York and Brooklyn which is tough a tough existence you talked about earlier how John had been in this relationship with Diana Highland, um, and she died during uh, production um, from breast cancer. And I, John had to leave set at times. How do you think this affected him in terms of what he brought to the character, or if if at all? Well, it's 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 hard to know, but you you have to think that he was grieving. First of all, just grieving very seriously. Uh, you know, I watched him. We were all taking, you know, trying to take care of him and be respectful of his of his space and, and give him room to mourn uh, while we continued to shoot. And we'd say, John, we're ready to go. And he'd be sitting, like, maybe on the floor, leaned up against a wall in in his parents' house. I remember, that's where I remember we were at, at when he came back and and he and he would oh okay okay and he would get up and come in and do the scene just amazingly well beautiful and and then while we were changing the camera he'd go back and sit down and just sink right back into himself uh so it takes a long time to recover from that uh and uh, you know to get out of that kind of grief as i'm sure you know if you've ever lost anybody close to you uh, I mean, may, maybe you, you grow some along the way, um, and and I I, so I had to shoot a, a, a film when when my mother passed away, and 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 there was 
a movement afoot at the studio to replace me because I was probably going to be useless. And it was the best thing I ever had was to be able to have something to go to work to take my mind off, uh, you know, my loss. Did you get any sense or did you get any sense that John had a sense of what this film could be for him? I mean, I know the studio wasn't sensing a hit on their hands and John was in this interesting place in his career where, you know, he was well known. I know the Welcome Back Cotter fans would try to try to get on the set, but he was about to become just this massive star. Well, I certainly recognize that the first the first time I I saw how crowds responded to him, our first day of shooting, we had to shut down uh, by the L train in Brooklyn because there were fifteen thousand fans that just gathered out of nowhere, out of nowhere, and we couldn't turn the camera left, right, up, down, anywhere we looked. There were fans, and and nobody could control them. Uh, and when I talked to Michael Eisner and Barry Diller, who were running Paramount at the time, I said, you have a major undiscovered star on your hands. I just know it by the way these people are responding to him. What was their reaction? Well, the kind of what I would have expected, which was, oh, okay, well, that's nice, John. <laughs> And that was kind of the the response around around Hollywood at the time. Uh, people, you know, they just they had no clue that the audience was going to react in such huge numbers and so positively. I certainly had no idea. Maybe Robert Stigwood had oh, yeah. had it because uh, he had such faith in it. It wasn't that I didn't have faith. I just never thought in that big a. That that it could be as big as it was. What effect did the Bee Gees music have on making the film in in terms of creating atmosphere or helping you guys nail the vibe? Oh, it was great. It was great because uh, they they had they had produced really top notch demos that I had to work with while we were shooting, and all I said all I said to Barry Gibb was. When you're finishing these, and I know you've got a lot of work you want to do on them, the only thing I ask is, please do not change the tempo. Right. Because we're gonna we're gonna dance and we're gonna use these for playback, <laughs> and and if you change the tempo, it's gonna make everybody look klutzy. And they did that, but we were able to play these uh, these songs in the disco out on the street for staying alive in the subway for how deep is your love uh, it it puts you in the mood right away when it was exhilarating in the disco and just so sad and 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 lonely on the subway at the end yeah yeah, speaking of that, towards that end, I, I love that Tony's world comes crashing down either in or around 2001. You know, this place where he had seen himself as better than the crowd, but then he realizes he's not the best dancer after it's clear this contest has been rigged in his favor. He's disgusted by his friend's racism towards the Puerto Rican dancers. He's disgusted by his own behavior with Stephanie outside 2001, you know, in in the car. And it's just this powerful slap in his face 
not just that needed to happen, but like in the place that it needs to happen. Yeah, it was it was tricky to have a uh, to pick contestants for the dance contest because they had to look better than our two people, and at the same time we couldn't make our two people look like uh, they were bad dancers. Right, uh, and so the the one solution was to give everybody up to up tempo uh numbers to do and uh and and to give ours our couple a, a romantic number to do right. right uh so that they weren't trying to do another up tempo jazzy number you can you can sort of dis, uh distinguish between them that way yeah and you could say well i guess they're okay mm-hmm. they're not bad but whoa these these this puerto rican couple knocks your socks off the uh, the movie it's set in a world of misogyny with a, with a lot of misogynistic characters. It's a really rough place for the two female leads, and I don't think the movie itself is misogynistic, but I do think it could have been. And how conscious were you of this as a potential issue making the movie? And then how do you go about avoiding that? Well, it 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 is definitely one of one of the whole. Uh, the subtext this this misogyny is running through uh, or is a theme not a subtext it's a a theme there and i don't know by trying by trying to portray it in the in the ways that we did we're we're saying you know we the filmmakers don't believe in this we're not reveling in this it's just kind of documentary and raw yeah so that you know this is the way people are and and it's not us just kind of enjoying uh enjoying it uh in in a way that would be you know really unpleasant and really off-putting yeah i mean it's i i imagine it's a difficult tone to and and a difficult balance to try to reach in the movie to make sure that you don't pull those punches but that nothing feels misinterpreted yeah, I mean, for example, when when uh, uh, when his other girlfriend gets uh, gets raped in the back of the car toward the end of the yes. movie, uh, you know, I felt very squeamish about this, and and you know, and and yet Robert thought it was really important to to have a sense of it in the movie, and and I and I finally decided that. What we needed to do was just get hints of it, you know, maybe mm-hmm. kind of hands and her being Annette being upset and and play most of it on John's face as he's driving the car yeah. and 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 he's just hearing this this stuff that's going on and he doesn't even look in the rearview mirror, uh, you know, he's just disgusted with the whole thing and that that disgust. Uh, you know, hopefully conveys that the filmmakers are disgusted too. Speaking also of a scene like that, there's there's the scene before that with Tony and Stephanie in the car, and and Tony gets really sexually aggressive with Stephanie to the point where it could have become rape, and she kicks him to escape. And Tony comes by her place the next day to apologize, and she lets him in to hear him out. From your perspective, why does she let him in? Because it would have been understandable for Stephanie to tell Tony to stay out of her life. Well, uh, I can't. <laughs> I can't tell you what was going through her mind. Uh, 
at that point. Uh, from your perspective, then, I guess. Well, from my perspective, certainly we, you know, we made it difficult for him uh, when he's outside the door, it, the double locked door out, you know, out on the street, that she wasn't letting him in, and he had to kind of trick his way as somebody was leaving to go to breakfast. That somebody is is me, by the way. Oh. in the in the picture. Excellent work. With my with my copy of the Sunday New York Times under under my arm, and uh, and so he now he shows up at her door and she keeps telling him to go away, and and uh, and he keeps begging and she finally listens to this pathetic soul out there and she opens the door and the first time first thing she says is first time I ever let a known rapist into my apartment. Right. You know, which is the wonderful Norman Wexler dialogue for, uh, yeah, I know this is a little crazy, but uh, I'm doing it anyway. And and so she made a made a point of that and, and uh, checked him out at the door. You know, didn't let him get far beyond the door before she took him up into the apartment. They sit down by the window. Right. Right. The... The script it's it's based off this New York Magazine article from 1976, and right. you're when you're filming something like this, you're working off something that resonates at the time. But it, it's so it's so difficult to know what will resonate like two weeks from now, much less a year from now. Oh my God! Yeah. How hard is it to capture a cultural moment in time? You know what? I pretended to myself. I said, "You were born in England." Suppose you'd never been here, and and you're doing a documentary on this phenomenon of of disco. Uh, so what do you do? You come in, you turn your cameras on, and 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 record what's happening. So let's let's do that. Let's be very open to what's going on in Brooklyn, the way people are. And I literally, many many times, almost every day, would be walking up to passers-by or extras that were working in the show or or actors and say, what would really happen here? What would happen in this situation? What kind of car would these guys be driving? And and I would go with that, uh, even though sometimes I would get, you know, pretty shocking racist answers to to questions. Uh, we We would go just trying to keep the the gritty reality of it and not let it get all kind of glossy and romantic an ugly reality. It's still reality. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the last question I have about Saturday night fever, what does it mean to you personally to have directed a movie with this type of cultural resonance? And Gene Siskel has called it his favorite movie of all time. It's on several, you know, hundred greatest films list, that sort of thing. I believe the suits now in the Smithsonian, Yes, and and the film the film is in the in the Library, Library of, of Congress. Congress, too. Uh, well, I've oh God, this is just going to sound so corny, but I am so you know kind of lucky to have been a part of this. It's just a kind of confluence of factors, a perfect storm that that got me there where I was being considered for it, and. Um, you know, was in it was in a place in my head at the time that was ready to do a musical, had been preparing to do a musical, a project that had fallen apart on the whiz. Okay, yes, 
and and I had been studying that and studying musicals and so on, and that that project fell apart for, for me. Actually, I left the project, and uh, and this came along, and it's this huge hit, and I'm going, oh my god, <laughs> I'm I'm the same you know idiot that I was before. Uh, I, I didn't suddenly get better or anything. I'm just so fortunate to be to be a part of this. Uh, and, and then I just had a couple questions about your career in general. You, you directed the movie War Games, which, which I love. It was it's been a movie that I've enjoyed for a long time. It, is it safe to say that Dabney Coleman is the greatest on-screen a-hole in modern film history? I mean, I, nobody was more entertaining while being totally unlikable, and he just had this oh. run in the '80s that was phenomenal. Oh. I know, I know. He just, it's its in Dabney's personality. I mean, you, you're you around him, and he, <laughs> it's just kind of in his nature. He just... I've heard he can be tough, <laughs> I mean, to be honest. He can be really, really tough and, and, uh, and, and hard to deal with, but, you know, he's really a lovely guy at heart. My daughter... My daughter dated his son for a long time, so I got some insights into Dabney that, uh, <laughs> you know, she would joke about him out at dinner all the time because he was always eating at uh, Dantana's. Right. Almost every every <laughs> night of the that week. That sounds about right. Uh, and and making fun of, you know, people would come in. Harry Dean Stanton would come in, and he'd just... just uh, kid and mock Harry Dean up one side and down the other it was just it was just that was Dabney and uh, well, he's still with us he's uh, he's here but uh <laughs> that just that string of movies yeah that string of movies is just it's it's not easy to make somebody as unlikable as he was on screen that entertaining that you you just want the time around him it's, it's a real talent you've got a lot of movies on your resume that I don't think would get made now you know, movies like Stakeout or Drop Zone, Nick of Time, like these mid-budget comedies or action movies without superheroes or effects. They're not tent poles. They're not franchises. They're all, you know, they're not extremely expensive. What What do you think of sort of the current state of studio movies? Well, I can I can tell you from the screeners that are coming into my house now from the Academy for this year's Academy Awards and uh it's like all the pictures that are not being made by the studios that's where the bulk of the movies are coming from they're they're coming from independent sources uh or kind of independent arms of of a studio like at fox where they'll have the fox searchlight um but the studios are all so into these big tentpole and now tentpole comic book movies mm-hmm. that they're having trouble with. You know, there's very few Wonder Women films around and, and lots of, uh, you know, what's what's it called of the galaxy, the, the one that's out Guardians, now, Guardians, Guardians of, the galaxy. of the Galaxy that are having real trouble with the audiences and not, not getting... Oh, the Justice League. Justice League is having a difficult time. Okay, okay. Is it Justice League? Yes. Right. Um, and and did I not read today that uh, 
one of the execs at Warner Brothers who was championing that film had to had to resign because things weren't going. So he was going to move himself into independent production. Um, and it's hard. They're trying to find what's going to get people out of their chairs in their living room and and out to the theater. And it sounds like the comic book movies would be a good bet because kids like to get out and don't like to stay in the house. But they've gotten so persnickety that they can say, eh, I'll just wait a little while and it'll be on my computer. Right. I'll watch it on my iPhone. Well, the movie is Saturday Night Fever. It turns 40 years old December 14th. Congratulations on your part in this accomplishment, and I really appreciate the time. Thank you, John Badham. Well, thank you, Andy. It's great talking with you.